Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. Carson puts it in behind the jet net, and Olison has it. 25 seconds left, second period. 4-0 Winnipeg. Hallett in the corner. On the left side, Turnbull to center ice to Newfeld with Boschman two on two. Newfeld lets it go, it's wide. Now Turnbull down into the corner, puts it into the... Gay picks it up, dumps it out to center. Eight seconds left in the second period. It's brought out of the zone now by Galley. His pass to Bourne, Bourne breaking it, a goal! The shot, Reddick the save! The rebound knocked away by Carlisle as the period ends on a good save by Pokey Reddick off Bob Bourne. So the Winnipeg Jets come up with two goals in each period and go to the dressing room leading by four to nothing. This is Jets hockey from the Winnipeg Arena on 58 CKY. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All righty, let's get this show on the road, shall we? Hi there, friends. Your pal Tim Hanlon here reporting for duty, your doctor of defunct, your evocator of expansion, your professor of previously domiciled, your reverend of relocations, whatever you call me, I'm here to help you get through another week with uh, a fun-filled uh, discussion into some new topic into the realm of what used to be in professional sports. That's what we do here on this little show. Good seats still available, and I appreciate you finding us and uh, downloading us, putting us in your uh, earbuds or wherever, however else you're ingesting. Uh, the audio goodness we have in store for you this week, we appreciate it. We are honored to have the great voice of the original NHL Winnipeg Jets, not the current version, but the NHL transformed uh, team from the old WHA, and uh, the also the original voice of the Phoenix Coyotes when the Winnipeg Jets version 1.0 moved to Phoenix. His name is Kurt Kilback, and you just heard his voice, his mellifluous tones, calling uh, a game from the old barn of Winnipeg Arena. I think it was, uh, let's see, it was February 6th. 1987, it was the LA Kings at the Winnipeg Jets. Again, the original version in the NHL. So not the WHA version and not the second version that exists now, the former Atlanta Thrashers. No, this is the, and this is why we do this on this show, right? We want to focus on these areas and teams and situations that for whatever reasons aren't around anymore. And uh, that was how the game was ending the second period with the Jets up, having just scored 4-0 over the LA Kings on the, um, the mighty 58 CKY. I don't know if that's still around up in Winnipeg, that station. Uh, but that's what you would have heard. Um, and um, uh, a better uh, hockey broadcaster you won't find. Um, uh, probably one of the uh, the best voices. Uh, certainly well-loved and revered and remembered uh, in the Winnipeg area. And uh, arguably a, um, a broadcast career uh, ended too soon. Uh, we'll get into some of the reasons why in 2006, 2007, uh, the then Phoenix Coyotes, now known as the Arizona Coyotes, uh, decided to cut ties 
uh, with Kurt. And um, let's put it this way: I, I, I <laughs> we'll we'll talk about it, but I, I would suggest that um, uh, the broadcast booth was uh, not the problem for this franchise. And and look, it, it continues today, right? Today's Arizona Coyotes, as they're known, you know, they're still fumbling around the their arena situation. I, they're you know they for whatever reasons couldn't pay their their arena taxes on time and 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 managed to figure out how to alienate the uh, uh, the arena owners that they were in last year and and now are all set frankly to kind of carpet bag on the on the backs of uh, the development team behind the new barely 5,000 seat arena for developed for the Arizona State University hockey program. And for the next supposedly two or three seasons, the Arizona version of the coyotes are gonna try to make it work there. Uh, I, I, I don't believe the press that I'm reading and that they're going to make more revenues from selling a third less seats, uh, and raising the prices and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, it seems like it's been a fantasy ever since they moved there in the first place in, uh, you know, the beginning of the aughts, uh, this has been, you know, Gary Bettman's, uh, if you will, wet dream, I think to make Phoenix and the Arizona market work for the NHL and, you know, it's not Seattle and it's not a it's not a Las Vegas. Uh, it's Arizona. Uh, and there are various and sundry reasons for that. But it's not like they haven't had chance after chance after chance. Right. So uh, but I digress. Um, we wish them nothing but the best. I, I would argue it, it, this it, this is probably one last chance. If the new arena comes comes around and, and maybe saves the franchise that way, uh, perhaps. But um, I'll take the I'll take the. Um, I'll take the under on that and uh, maybe even guess that perhaps they'll be in Houston by the time you listen to this episode, say, I don't know, five years from now. Um, but that's just me and, and making a long bet. But I digress. The uh, conversation is about the good times and the great memories of Kirk Kilback's broadcasting career of the two interesting versions of this uh, checkered franchise, shall we say. Again, the the. NHL years in the original version, after having uh, transformed from the very dominant WHA years, a, uh, a huge and uh, 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 totemic franchise in the World Hockey Association's life, uh, those early first years in the NHL, uh, decidedly less than that sort of championship kind of a swagger, uh, really kind of like almost like an expansion franchise in their first couple of years of the NHL. The fans didn't dis- uh, disappoint in their enthusiasm, however, and the uh, enthusiasm uh, behind the uh, the mic and the mics there calling those games was uh, certainly not w- uh, lacking either. Uh, and uh, the uh, Phoenix Coyotes, the first rev of the current franchise's existence in Arizona, and uh, lots of great stories you're going to hear in the next hour plus uh, with Kurt Kielbach. And uh, the ones we don't get to, those stories, you can uh, revel in in his brand new book. It's called Two Minutes for Talking to Myself. Uh, that came out, I think it was in the middle of August. It's available now uh, in hardcover and paperback and Kindle. Um, and uh, it is the um, uh, it's a fun ride I, for for those who knew the original Jets in the NHL, who remember the original days of the Phoenix Coyotes. Uh, remember, uh, the, uh, the Alex Ovechkin, uh, goal that, uh, he scored against Phoenix in 2006 
that sort of incredible behind the back and on his on his side and twisting and turning. Um, uh, uh, Kurt was there for that game um, and a whole bunch of other memories uh, to be had both in the book and in our conversation coming up uh, with the great Kurt Kilback, a uh, fun conversation. And um, he's got great pipes, man. He still has still has them. And uh, once a broadcaster, always a broadcaster. I'm jealous for sure. Uh, before we get there, a uh, just a quick reminder. Uh, if you like what you hear, uh, please, by all means, go to uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you can rate and review our show. We we greatly appreciate your doing so. A five-star rating is uh, always welcome. And um, that's going to help people find the show. Uh, it adjusts the algorithms for other people like you or other people who may be intrigued with the uh, the topics that we uh, delve into on this little show. Uh, and again, so we uh, appreciate in advance. It's the least you can do. We don't charge you a cent for the show. Uh, and uh, if um, you can uh, help us out, we'd appreciate that. Again, just go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Again, wherever uh, you can rate and review. And frankly, of course, of course, just tell your friends. We, uh, we grow by leaps and bounds, it seems, every month. And uh, we appreciate your support. And this is the best way to do so. And uh, all right, then done groveling, done with that. Let's get into it. All right, shall we? It's uh, a wonderful and fun and uh, inventive conversation. Uh, with Kurt Kielback, we talk about some Winnipeg Jets memories, some Phoenix Coyotes memories, uh, and a little bit about uh, the, the before uh, of that uh, of that uh, the, that story, as well as a bit of uh, prognostication about what might be uh, in store for the NHL and uh, the Arizona franchise uh, in particular. Wonderful conversation. Here it comes. Please, as always, enjoy. Give us a sense, give our audience a sense of where you came from. Like, what was your what was your path to getting into the broadcast booth in the first place? Well, I came by it naturally. My father was a broadcaster. And I uh, used to accompany him to the broadcast booth on a regular basis and got to watch a lot of games and got to hear him do them. And And I guess I was one of few people who actually knew what I wanted to do at a very early age. My mother said I was about seven when I told her I wanted to be a hockey broadcaster when I grew up. So I was able to follow my dad's footsteps and he helped me along the way. And we got started that that way. What what was your dad doing? Was he a CBC guy? What what was a, a radio? No, he was on radio, and uh, he was in uh, Winnipeg initially, and then he moved out into Saskatchewan, and uh, he did a lot of football and baseball, and, and in particular hockey over the years, and in those markets. So, so well, sports. I mean, he was a sportscaster. Okay, so sports definitely, and you saw Dad going to work doing the sports thing. So, at what point do you sort of? get the you put the pieces together i'm assuming you're a hockey fan just by the fact that you're you know you're a you're canadian native and that's kind of a birthright uh and uh and sports obviously is probably of an interest to you regardless of what you think your dad or your parents do for livings but at what point do you become i don't know aware that these two things uh, an actual job and the thing of sports is actually something that you can combine and and make a living at well, at a very early age, I mean, it didn't take me long to realize that uh, I enjoyed hockey more than just about anything, and I enjoyed playing it, but I wasn't uh, particularly good at it because I was a terrible skater. So that left one avenue open to me, and that was uh, over the air. 
and I had a little bit of an in there, as they say, so that helped, and uh, I got pointed in the right direction. So it was always something, I guess, that I had in the back of my mind. But I think like anything else, you don't really know for sure that you'll ever arrive at that point. And I was just uh, lucky the phone rang uh, one day just out, out of the absolute blue at a time when I had never even seen an NHL hockey game live, and suddenly I was offered the opportunity to broadcast NHL hockey. So I jumped all over it, and it worked pretty well. Okay, but that that doesn't happen magically, right? You had to have some kind of chops, right? You were doing you were doing radio, I'm guessing, and and uh, how did you get started? Was it the college radio station thing? Did you just uh, send your resume out and just say I'll do anything and and get into the newsroom? No, actually, actually, I started in radio when I was 13. I had a radio show once a week uh, called My Minor Sports Corner, and I would pass on the results of little league games in in the small city of Yorkton where I was located. And uh, then uh, a couple years later, I started doing play-by-play baseball on the same station. And so a couple years after that, I just approached the station and asked if I could get on the air. They said, yes, you can. In fact, we've got an opening for an evening disc jockey. So (laughs) I did a a disc jockey show that first night. In those days, we had turntables. And when the morning man showed up, uh, two of the three turntables were broken. So they said, you know what, uh, we'd like to have you around, but maybe not in that capacity. So they put me into sports. What kind of music were you possibly going to be playing? Well, it was uh, mostly country music at that time. So, uh, and a little bit of a mixed bag. It was a Sunday night show, and they, I just had a pile of records there, and they said, go ahead and play what you want. But I did notice that most of them were country. But like I say, that career lasted all of about uh, three or four hours, and, and then it was moved into a different branch of broadcasting. All right, so so what, what were, I mean, you were mentioning some of the play-by-play that you were doing, but like, give us a sense of the kinds of sports that you were thrown into, either reporting or, or play-by-playing, if at all. Well, I did uh, football, uh, junior football. I did junior hockey. I did uh, senior hockey. did a fair amount of curling. Curling was big in that part of the country, and I used to have to go and, and travel to the provincial curling championships, the national curling champs uh, championships, and on one occasion, the world curling championships. And I uh, did a lot of baseball, too. In fact, it was interesting because somebody asked me the other day, what was my favorite sport to broadcast? And I could tell you, I enjoyed doing baseball more than any of them. Even though I was more of a hockey fan, I just found a, the relaxation, the feel of being outside on a warm summer night and calling a baseball game was something I thoroughly enjoyed. So as you're doing that, you're getting your chops, you're getting your reps in, Um what's the what's the plan what, what's the goal what's the what's the dream at this point as you're making your way through the beginnings of your broadcasting career well i guess the far off uh and seemingly unrealizable dream at that time was to, to broadcast hockey for a living but it uh it didn't look that way because i eventually got married and got into television i did uh, television for five years at a small station in Saskatchewan and it was a, it was a great job. I really enjoyed it. And I had the opportunity to do every part of uh, the business there, uh, sports and news and weather and uh, the commercials. And, and then, uh, as I said before, the, the phone rang one day and, and the next thing I knew I was off to Winnipeg to broadcast hockey for the Winnipeg Jets. Well, how does that happen? <laughs> well, actually it was a bit of luck because uh, one of the people at the station I had been a broadcast partner of my dad at an earlier time. 
and the station had been shopping for someone to do the uh, color commentary for the Winnipeg Jets, and they had invited a lot of applicants, and apparently they didn't find any they liked. And so they were sitting there exasperated, and this former partner of my dad happened to be walking into the room. He said, what's the problem? And they said, we can't find anybody to do this. He said, well, get Kirk Keel back. I think he's in Saskatchewan. He'll do the job for you. So it was just uh, him being at the right place and me being at the right place at the right times. So you get the call. Okay. It's hard to, frankly, you know, in hindsight, right? It feels like it's it's hard to believe, right? And I think anybody would pinch themselves to kind of get that gig. Um, and, you know, and, and, and hockey at that. I mean, it, the revered sport of hockey, which is kind of next to godliness in Canadian lore, right? And Yes, you, it is. You, yes, you're right. Here you are, right? And so so set the scene. So you're moving you're moving to to Winnipeg and you're you're getting you're getting to be in the booth as as the as the color commentary guy. Um but set the scene though for for this team because the Winnipeg Jets, right, in 1979, your first season, um it had a bit of a history in the WHA prior to that. And uh, this was their first year in the NHL. Maybe you could kind of set the tone and the mood for folks who are uninitiated as to what you were walking into with this Jets franchise, what you thought you knew and and what actually was going on uh, leading up to this brand new and very different season. Well, the Jets had been a tremendous hockey team for the seven years before in the World Hockey Association. They'd They'd won, I think it was three championships, and of course they had Bobby Hull and Anders Hedberg and Alf Nilsson and Lars Eric Schuberg. But as uh, time went on, and once they moved into the NHL, it wasn't uh, as much uh, a merger as a hostile takeover because uh, the NHL at that time wanted the WHA to die, and to do so, they managed to bring in four teams, but they really stripped them of talent. I mean, some of them had the right deal. Wayne Gretzky wound up being with the Edmonton Oilers because he had a personal services contract with the owner. That's how they got by with that. And as far as the Jets were concerned, they went from being a powerhouse in the WHA to where they had to keep only four players, and two of them had to be goalies. So they had a tough decision to make. They had to let go of some quality hockey players who went on to different teams, like Terry Ruskowski was one, and uh, Rich Preston was another. But they did uh, keep a small core of people, and a lot of people who thought they would never play in the NHL played with them in that first year. But they had an advantage. People in Winnipeg understood hockey. They also realized that uh, the team they were getting was going to take quite a while to be anywhere near the team that they had been uh, watching for the last seven years. So they were prepared for the growing pains. They showed up. They supported. And, in fact, the first year wound up being better than the second because I think the first year there was a lot of adrenaline that uh, powered these people through. People who had never been at Maple Leaf Gardens or Madison Square Garden or the Montreal Forum, and they were pretty excited to play, and it uh, was reflected. And by the second year, uh, reality reared its ugly head, and that's the year they went 30 games, 30 games without a win. So I am actually the only on-air person or media person who had the uh, honor of witnessing all 30 of those winless games. It was a long, difficult uh, trek for the hockey team. But people here, uh, they uh, were good. They were patient. In fact, I think at game 23, they gave the team a standing ovation for effort. So they were ready for uh, for a lot of failure before any success was at hand. So what, okay, really, what were you told and what, what was your, what, what were they feeding you, so, so to speak, uh, as the beginning of the NHL version of this adventure for this team 
began? Because, I mean, I, I think you're kind of underselling the drama of all this, right? Because, I mean, if if anybody would ask you what the most dominant team in the WHA was, it was the Winnipeg Jets. And going from literally the penthouse to the poorhouse, um, you know, especially that 80-81 second season, right? Nine wins. I mean, I, um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 were people, I mean, if the, as, as you can recollect, were people like, were they really uh, prepared for just literally what a shock this was, uh, let alone the fact that it was NHL and, and all that stuff? I mean, when when do you think reality kind of really hit people or were they just kind of just blindly trying to will it away or, or to a better a better realm over, you know, over time? No, I think the expectations were low when they got into the NHL. They realized that uh, the talent was gone. I, I think, though, that after getting 20 wins in the first year, they were probably expecting a step up in the second. So the second year was a disappointment, no question about it. Like you say, nine wins and, and uh, 30 in a row without a victory. But you had to have been at the Winnipeg Arena on December 23rd of uh, would have been 81, I guess, so... No, it would have been 80 when they finally broke that uh, 30-game winless streak. And really, the atmosphere in the building was like they'd won the Stanley Cup. People were crazy. It was. Uh, it just kind of showed how much uh, hockey is part of the blood around here, how much they wanted success, and, and how well-received this team of... Uh, of no names for the most part was being received and uh, it was going to take time and and you know in some markets they may not have tolerated that but Winnipeg had been in a situation where they had wanted to be in the NHL for such a long time and now it was here and if they had to pay a price for a while to achieve any success they were willing to do it how did your process evolve um I got to think you had a little bit of uh, uh some nerves in those first games and maybe that first season or two because had you done color commentary for an NHL franchise in in a major market in Canada before? No, uh, I, I gotta think you've been must have been a little bit nervous. Oh, I was uh, absolutely. I was uh, the first game I did actually was in Colorado Springs, and I remember sitting there looking down. It was at the Broadmoor World Arena. And it was an exhibition game that year, and thinking, "Wow, this is it!" I mean, this wasn't the, the major league facility, but this was a major league game, and and it was all happening. And I looked out there, and I thought, "Wow, I've never seen NHL hockey before." But I was fortunate in that I had done junior hockey about five years before in the Western Hockey League, a very successful franchise, the Regina Pats, who won the Memorial Cup. So I got to see a lot of players who were in that game had played in the Western Hockey League. So what I did for the first part is I kind of focused on what I knew and then tried to uh, gain information along the way. And I was fortunate, too. The man I worked with was Ken Fryer Nicholson, and he'd been the voice of the Jets the whole time they'd been in the WHA, and he was a storyteller that had a million tales to tell. And so every day he would fill me all kinds of information and tell me stories. I was intrigued. I was interested. And I was able to absorb a lot of it and, uh, you know, get him going as much as me. And if I ever thought there was a time when maybe I didn't have anything to say, I would throw a question to him and he'd have a story for it. So it worked pretty well. He and I uh, had a good partnership. Did you do radio and TV simulcasts or were those separate uh, broadcasts? How did that all work? Well, no, in the early days, uh, it was uh, strictly radio. And then for a while, uh, I did simulcasts uh, once I got into the play-by-play. And then it was uh, strictly television. And then uh, when I moved on to Phoenix, it was, again, all three, some radio, some television, and and some simulcasts. So, uh, 
yeah, I got a, a chance to do to do to do it all. And actually, that time spent uh, being a color man was a good experience. And and you know, you do more interviews and that sort of stuff, more game prep, I think, as a color man than you do as a play-by-play guy. So it kind of helps you set things up. Um. So how about uh, preparation? Uh, what did and what became sort of your process to uh, get ready for the games? And I guess most interestingly, I'll ask this sort of <laughs> Molotov of a question. What did what, if anything, uh, influential did the team and the PR department have on your broadcasts? Uh, heavy handed, light handed, um, something in between um, pressure to say or not say things. No, no, not at all. It was good. Uh, they had a lot of respect for my broadcast partner, Ken Nicholson. So when uh, I got into the booth, it was pretty well say what you feel. And there was no push on anybody to be a homer or to uh, favor the Jets in any way. So we tried. Uh, we tried to keep our broadcast as neutral as possible. And uh, matter of fact, I always had this thought in the back of my mind that I envisioned someone getting into a car and a, distant place and tuning in and hearing the broadcast and hearing me doing the game and saying, I can't tell which team this guy's affiliated with. And that was what I always had in the back of my mind. And uh, I don't know, that's where I find, and I'm getting on to today now, I guess I find things a little different because I find now that broadcasts are a lot more biased than they than they were back in those days. Well, I, I th- it's probably also that the, the, the business is bigger, right? And the, 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 uh, 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 the money is much greater, and the, the the stakes in some respects are a bit higher, right? So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe yeah. That- and you know, and, and there are some teams. I should mention this too. There are some teams you mentioned heavy-handed before, and there are some teams that insist their uh, play-by-play people, uh, you know, make it evident who they're working for, who they're cheering for, and and uh, in there to sell tickets and to sell the team more than anything. We were kind of, uh, I mean, we were aware that we were trying to sell tickets for the Winnipeg Jets. There was no question. And the bigger the crowd, it was better for us, obviously. But we're also trying to sell a game overall. And if Guy Lafleur made an outstanding rush from end to end, I wasn't going to be quiet about it. I was going to let people know it was a great rush, great goal. Give me some sense of some of those players in those first years when you were color commentating. Uh, 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 obviously, that was a... I guess it's probably you could characterize it as a cast of characters, right? Because it wasn't sort of the the solid championship teams of of WHA. Your and um, it it looks like those first couple of years as well uh, was kind of a bit of a revolving door. Some people making uh, return appearances in the uh, in the coaching side of things. Yeah, they had uh, they had a few people. Uh, you know, initially they had uh, Tom McVie was the the first coach and. And then they went on to Tom Watt, and they had very long. But they did have a, a cast of characters that uh, some of them had been with the WHA Jets, uh, Lars Eric Schuberg and, and Barry Long. Morris Lukowicz scored uh, 33 goals the year that uh, the team only won nine games. So that kind of tells you how committed he was to success. So there were always interesting people, and there were some others who you, you knew darn well if uh, it was a team other than an expansion team, they wouldn't be there. And they realized that too, and I think that uh, inspired them to, to try to prolong their career as best they could. And, and so it was it was just a, a, a good uh, good effort really i mean no success but a good effort oh so you i think you may have slipped there when you said uh, and i guess did did it feel like an expansion franchise even though you knew it kind of wasn't right but 
Yeah, well, it felt like an expansion franchise, but, you know, now, when you take a look at expansion franchises now, they start off with a fair amount of uh, talent and uh, early draft picks and that sort of thing. In those days, they didn't. I mean, these four teams that went from the WHA to the NHL, they were stripped. And uh, even at the draft, they got the last four picks. So you keep two guys plus two goalies, and really none of them had two good goalies, but that was uh, half of what you could keep. And uh, then you had to wait and and, uh, and look for the, the 21st choice. The Winnipeg Jets' first draft pick was Jimmy Mann. And, of course, he didn't have a, a great career as far as uh, scoring goals or anything. I mean, he was the toughest uh, guy you ever saw and a great fighter. But, but uh, so it was, it was a long haul. And it was it was it was tough for those teams. The exception, it wasn't quite as tough for Edmonton because, like I say, they they were able to keep a couple of good players, and uh, they had Gretzky under that personal services, so he was exempt from the four, and that's a pretty good nucleus right there. When um, when do you go from uh, color commentary to play by play, and how does that happen? Because I think, as anybody who's been in the broadcast booth might know. Um, that's not an easy transition, and there's only a small percentage of people can, that are, you know, well versed to be able to do both of those things. Um, how does that come about? And uh, was it your idea or somebody else's to do the play-by-play? Well, actually, play? the transition for me was in reverse because my background had been in play-by-play. I had done play-by-play in the Saskatchewan Senior League, and then later on for the Regina Pats in the in the Western Junior League. So I had about uh, four years of of play-by-play, and and I'd done a significant number of games. So the transition really was uh, going to color for those three years. And and the whole time I was doing color, I I missed doing the play-by-play because uh, that uh, is what I enjoyed more of the two. And then when uh, the rights changed hands from uh, one radio station in Winnipeg, CJOV, to another radio station, CKY, it was they who suggested we change hats. And I think it was for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Friar uh, Nicholson, my partner, was a, a storyteller, and they wanted him to do a little bit more of that. But also, he was diabetic, and his eyesight was uh, beginning to, to cause some problems, and he was missing the odd thing. So, and uh, so it was just a, kind of a, a thing that happened, and, and uh, it worked out well, I think, for both of us. So it was smooth, you're saying, that transition. It was smooth. It was smooth. And it was, you know, and, and over the previous three years, I had done some play-by-play as well because, as I say, my partner was diabetic, and every once in a while he, he wouldn't be able to answer the bell for two or three games, and, and I would fill in in that capacity at that point. And I guess that's when they realized that I was capable of doing it at, uh, at the level that they wanted. And so the transition, once we crossed the street, uh, that was the first thing they said. Uh, we want to have both you guys come and work for us, but we want Kirk to do the play-by-play, and we want Fryer to do the color. So we said, hey, you want us? We're here. And uh, and that was a great move for us, too. And I, and I think in particular for me, because it kind of launched everything more so. Yeah, well, it also seemed to be timely, uh, time nicely with, uh, uh, I think, finally, some fruits of the um, fruitless labors of the first two seasons because some of those draft picks that that came about were actually starting to uh, to bear some fruit on the buds. Um, yeah, and maybe because of the change in the broadcast booth too, that maybe some good luck that came their way. Yeah, you know the the things did change dramatically. They after that uh, second year. Uh, they became uh, the most improved team in the history of the league. They went, I mean, they, they had a pretty low ceiling to start from at 32 points the year before, but then they got 80 points in 80 games the next year. So that was a 48-point a improvement, and it was unprecedented. And, of course, they 
got into the playoffs. But uh, that was also the arrival of uh, Dale Howardchuk at that particular time. And, and Paul McLean showed up in a trade with St. Louis, and they had good goaltending with uh, Eddie Stanowski and Doug Sotard. And so it was uh, just the right time, and Dave Babbage was going into his second year, and he was a quality defenseman, a top-two defenseman. So suddenly they had a, a competitive team and an exciting team. And, and when you get an 18-year-old that goes out and scores, hundred and I think it was 103 points and gets the rookie of the year, you've got something going. You've got uh, excitement uh, not only on the team but in the broadcast booth and, of course, with the fans because uh, it was a lot of fun to watch that team. Tell me about the fans. Uh, tell me about the experience in the arena uh, and, frankly, uh, the relationship with uh, the broadcasts. Uh, how did they weigh in? Uh, how did you, uh, you know, commingle with them and find out their wants and desires and their likes and dislikes of your broadcast and stuff, or was it kind of walled off and separate? No, it was all one thing, and uh, the people in Winnipeg were great. Uh, you know, the Winnipeg Arena was 15,000, but somehow it was more of an intimate setting than than uh, a lot of the rinks you see now. It just uh, seemed like everyone was together. Everyone kind of pulled, and, and uh, at that time, uh, it was a big deal, and uh, pretty well everybody knew who I was, and I was uh, very well received. And, and so uh, to mingle with the crowd was an easy thing to do, always uh, – People would welcome you. And, and, of course, we did a lot of things like uh, banquets and, and golf tournaments, too, where we'd show up. And, and the players, at the, particularly in the first couple of years when there was a losing team and guys that didn't think they'd be in the NHL, particularly at that time, the players were out in the community a lot and speaking to kids and, and even going to their hockey practices. So it was uh, it was an enjoyable experience, and especially at that uh, early stage because we were all young and had lots of energy and lots of enthusiasm. And there wasn't a person in, in Winnipeg uh, involved with a team that didn't think that great things were, were ahead. And so as long as you're believing that, you're looking forward to it, and you're a piece of it, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. Well, explain kind of the dynamic. Would you call it a barn? Would you call, I mean, uh, how about the acoustics? I mean, the Go Jets Go thing obviously was, was piercing during the, during the WHA days, but obviously probably waned those first number of years in the NHL. What, what was the the vibe like? Was it was it always buzzing? And obviously it's a smaller market too, with re- relation to the other NHL franchises. Uh, was yeah, the- no, it could be it could be really exciting. And I mean, the arena wasn't uh, the, the, the way this, the the arena was configured. It was. Uh, it was rectangular, so I mean, uh, you had to look to your left or to your right, unless you were, you know, at, at one stage or another. It wasn't one of these uh, more oval shapes that you see now, where you're kind of facing the rink all the time. So you could. Uh, it was a little more difficult that way, and it was straight seats, and it uh, it, it it wasn't that uh, that comfortable really. But it was uh, had a warm environment to it, and, and uh, I always thought when I broadcast games out of the Winnipeg Arena, I really believed that I had the best location in the entire NHL because of the location of the booth. It was close to the ice and directly over center, and and you could almost hear the players talking down there. I mean, it was uh, at the quieter times, and then when they decided to launch that whiteout, uh, it was yeah, the loudest talk, place talk I had about ever that. been. You talk about that because that that I, I, there's a there's kind of a discussion that that maybe that's this is where this trend originated. Well, it is, and I can remember, in fact, uh, being in the office one day, and uh, one of the people came up to me and said, "We got we want you to read this promo," 
it was late in the season. And uh, so I did. I used it a couple of times in the broadcast. Everybody is encouraged to wear playoff white. And uh, and then you got there and they handed out uh, T-shirts and uh, pom-poms. And so, you know, you get uh, 15,000 people in that building all dressed in white and waving pom-poms. It looked like a blizzard. And it was incredibly loud. I had headsets on, and I couldn't hear, uh, even with the headsets, I couldn't hear the commercials or anything else. You try to talk to the person beside you, you couldn't hear them because they're outnumbered 15,000 to one. And uh, the, the players were absolutely awed by it all. They skated out. But the thing is, it inspired both sides because the, the visiting players, too, they'd never seen anything like it. And the building dressed uh, entirely in white and constant movement. It was it was dizzying, it was loud, and it was just uh, an atmosphere unlike anything anybody had ever experienced before. And, of course, it caught on. I know other markets uh, went the same route. Some of them tried different colors. But it seems to work best uh, with white. And, in fact, they still have that tradition here. Well, the uh, the arena did get its reputation uh, for being, I guess, constantly thought of as being one of the, if not the loudest arenas in uh, on the continent. And um, I, I had to think, well, look, and you look at the 1980s, I mean, with the exception of uh, looks like one season, um, although, you know, we, we can we can digress about the NHL playoffs and how relatively easy it was to get in there. Still, they were performing quite well and, and frankly, giving the fans something more to cheer about almost like the 70s back in the day. Well, you know, in those days, uh, particularly in the mid-80s, you could argue that the best three teams in the entire NHL were all playing in the same division. The Edmonton Oilers, the Calgary Flames, and the Winnipeg Jets. But the way the playoffs worked in those days, you had to get out of your own division. And that meant that one of the top three teams could not get beyond round one, and it guaranteed that only one of the top three teams could possibly make it to the Western Final. I don't think it was a very good system. So the the Jets lost out a lot of times. They only got to round two twice. Anytime you had to go up against uh, Mark Messier and Paul Coffey and Wayne Gretzky, and in particular Grant Fuhr, who never got enough credit in for what he did in those days, uh, it was pretty tough sledding. And I think the Calgary Flames did get by once. Uh, but uh, the Winnipeg Jets never got beyond there. And they, they had some tremendous hockey teams in those days. Well, talk about the, the divisional structures there, because uh, I, I think uh, one of our um, uh, our previous obsessions, the uh, the ill-fated Colorado Rockies when they moved to New Jersey, um, I, I think that set a chain of events along that that put Winnipeg into the Smythe division, which you know meant more competitiveness with uh, the Oilers and the Calgary Flames. I guess regionally, you know, from a rivalry perspective, not a bad thing, but you know, and maybe arguably two of the best teams in the latter half of the decade, right? But um, probably also made the mountain that much harder to climb, perhaps, right, for playoff success? Well, it did. But, you know, it, it was great during the regular season because it was always – every time the Edmonton Oilers and Winnipeg Jets uh, played in those days, it seemed every game wound up 6-5. to five. And you got to remember that in those days – there was a lot more goal scoring than there is now. The Edmonton Oilers, the first year they won the Stanley Cup, they averaged five and a half goals a game. Now the average game has five and a half goals. That's how much offense there was. And in the 84-85 season, the Winnipeg Jets had six players who scored 30 or more goals. 
So when you were out there, it was it was just end to end. And of course, where Paul Coffey was concerned, uh, he was uh, like a fourth forward most of the time. And it seemed he never left the ice. So the goaltending could be spectacular, and the score could still wind up six to five because the shots would be forty two to forty one. It was really exciting hockey to watch. But then you got into the playoffs, and like I say, you had to go face-to-face. You didn't necessarily have the opportunity to take on maybe the seventh or eighth best uh, team in uh, the Western Conference. You had to play one of the big guys. Yeah, I mean, almost and if you like, beat them, you had to play the other big guy. Yeah, I'm mean, gonna say like a seeding system was uh, clearly uh, in need. And, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that 84-85 season, I think the Jets had like the I don't know the third or fourth best record in the league, right? And arguably, you know, in a seeding system, that should mean a couple of fairly lower ranked and easier opponents for at least their first round, if not the second. Yeah, that's not how they did it in those days, though. And it, uh, you know, it, it wasn't right. And eventually, they did come to that realization that uh, you know, we'll go with the conference uh, one versus eight. And I, I think that's a lot better system because you want to have your top two teams meet uh, in the final if you can, not not in the first round. Yeah, well, we are talking about the NHL and uh, history, of course. You know, uh, the NHL at nineteen sixty-seven. You know, they were still at six teams, right? So, I mean. There's a and there's a, there's a lot of reasons and heritage and uh, old boy network, uh, you know, and, and tight fisted owners and all that stuff. So um, obviously things have changed dramatically since. You know, yeah, yeah, I, I can even remember there was a common expression back when uh, in the early '80s, back before there were overtime games, and there was a belief among general managers. And I heard this from more than one: a tie is as good as a win on the road. And I could never understand that. I, I, I mean, a, a tie, to me, was a waste. Uh, I could never understand why anybody would be satisfied with a tie. But if you're on the road, that was considered a, an achievement. Of course, nowadays it wouldn't be. And, and with overtime, uh, overtime was a good thing. And it took a while for them to realize that uh, they should decide these things rather than, than have two teams uh, wind up even. I think I can't remember now who it was, but there was one team one year wound up with 22 ties. You want a verdict. I do anyway. Yeah, I I agree. I, I um uh, yeah I I can be accused of being a traditionalist on a lot of different fronts, but I I grew up my sort of adjunct uh, to pro sports was soccer. I grew up in the New York area, being a New York Cosmos fan, and uh, you know and, and all that kind of stuff. And and soccer historically has had those dreaded ties, and arguably can be zero zero ones at that. Um, so yeah, I do like to see a, a result. And you know there was a thing back in the now I'm dating myself, but in the 70s and early 80s, a thing called the shootout in the North American Soccer League, which was a basically a, a kind of a precursor to what is now uh, a, a shootout shot in uh, in the NHL, where you start from the in the NHL's case the midway line, right, and it's a one on one, and it's an exciting thing to watch versus something I don't know less less than like say a penalty kick in soccer. Yeah, you know, I think they've done a lot to improve the the overtime. When they went to three on three, and that's really exciting to watch. And I think because they wanted to reduce the number of shootouts, because some people feel you feel it's just a a skill contest in that way, and, and not so much a team sport. But the three on three, I think, has worked very well for them. It's exciting to watch. And then, of course, if you don't get an answer, then then you have to go to the shootout. You keep going until somebody wins. So it's a much better system than they had back in the day. All right, so so tell me as as you know as the '80s go on, obviously uh, they've climbed the mountain. They're they're a competitive team despite uh, the NHL's obstacles, I guess, against it in terms of uh, playoff success and, and and whatnot. 
However, I think by the 90s, right, the early 90s, it's it's pretty evident that lots of things are going on. The modernization of the game, uh, the the expansion of the league, expansion of sports generally. Um, and it's, it's probably obvious to you um, that, you know, Winnipeg is – uh, wonderful in the fact that it's unique, I guess, in being one of the smaller market teams in this big, bad NHL. But maybe economically, it's not necessarily something that's going to guarantee success for too much longer. Well, that was the case. And uh, the ownership that they had at that particular time certainly wasn't uh, the equivalent to what they had in a lot of the, the other markets, the major markets. But, you know, it's not necessarily the size of the market that makes the difference. And now, by example, uh, the Winnipeg is still a smaller city in terms of NHL cities, but they have probably the richest owner in, in all of uh, the NHL individually, and David Thompson, the richest man in Canada. So if you've got that kind of uh, box behind you, you can you can go to the capacity, and you can weather a lot of storms when things aren't going so well, and, and maybe people are starting to get a little uh, antsy about uh, the team's lack of success, and the ticket sales aren't as good as they have been, but you can, uh, you can afford that. In those days, they didn't. They had a committee of... Uh, of several well-to-do people, but they didn't have a billionaire. And uh, you kind of need one of those. When did you kind of sense that this uh, existence in the NHL for Winnipeg might not be a guaranteed thing? Well, there were rumblings about it, uh, oh, I'd say three or four years earlier. And the ownership, the president of the team, Barry Shankro, indicated that you know, the, the old threat that we've heard so many times in so many places, if, we, if I don't get a new arena, this team's leaving. And so many owners had said that in so many sports, particularly in hockey, and uh, normally nothing much happened. And I think uh, people didn't take him quite as seriously as obviously he was. And uh, the more he said it and the more you watched how things were going, and, and then when uh, the contracts started going, once they, once they made the deal where they were able to publicize how much money everybody was making, and uh, the Chicago Blackhawks made an offer to Keith Kachuk for $6 million American, which the Jets matched. And, of course, that at that time was about $8 million Canadian dollars. And that's when you began to realize these people don't have that kind of money. And then, of course, uh, eventually T. Mussolini was dealt away, who was the crowd favorite, and uh, because they they didn't feel, I guess, that they could afford to have that many people. Well, if you start dealing away uh, superstars because you don't have enough money to pay them, your franchise is going to follow very quickly. How did it? Um, how did you find out <clears throat> that it was going to be official? And and what were the rumors of? Uh, perhaps what was going to happen. I mean, the shakedown of cities for new arenas and all that stuff um, is only more pronounced now, right? So it's not, it's not, it's not a, it, it, that, that idea hasn't gone away. But uh, I mean, I, I, did people and fans and, and the media, did they start picking up on, on signals? I mean, for example, the year before the actual move from Winnipeg, uh, the second smallest market, uh, or maybe the smallest market, Quebec, moved to Denver to become the Avalanche, right? The second chance at Denver as a franchise. That got that had to raise alarm bells. Number one, because it was a, a Canadian team now going to the United States. So there's a loss of that sort of pride thing. And then number two, it's a smaller market, not unlike Winnipeg. Would we be next? Am I reading into it too much? Or, or uh, No, you're not. Okay. Uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, I was surprised that at the reaction when those two franchises left because I had been in Quebec City 
And I thought, if anything, there would have been more fervor in Quebec than in uh, in Winnipeg, and that there would be more fight there than there was. But uh, they seemed to leave more quietly than Winnipeg did. Winnipeg put up one heck of a fight to try to keep the franchise here. It went to the point where they had kids breaking their piggy banks open to, to offer money to the owners to help play, pay for things. And and uh, I was at a party one night, uh, the last year they were there, and it was at Thomas Steen's house, who was one of the Jets' uh, best all-time players. And they uh, had a lot of well-to-do people from Winnipeg there. And they were taking them into a back room one at a time, and they were saying, how much can you commit? And some of these people, I guess, made the sizable promises. And then they got on the phone, and they were even wandering around on the front lawn talking to uh, uh, Winnipeggers who had, had moved away, I think, uh, well-to-do people. I think even Peter Nygaard, of course, is in some trouble right now. And they called him, and they called a lot of people all over the world who had been in Winnipeg and may have felt uh, some loyalty to get them to contribute. And it seemed like it was going to happen. It really did. And at that time, I was one of the people who thought it would. And so they were going to make an announcement at 2 o'clock one afternoon at Winnipeg's iconic corner, which is Portage in Maine. And in fact, I was there behind the microphone, and, and people skipped work, skipped school. And there were thousands of people. They didn't allow traffic on the downtown streets at that particular time because the announcement was going to come at 2 o'clock. Well, when it didn't come at 2 o'clock, and then it got to be about 5 after 2, and then about 10 after 2, you just see everyone's head begin to drop, and everyone start to go away, because we'd realize, nope, it wasn't going to happen. The backroom boys had had a final discussion. They couldn't get to the total commitment they wanted, so they dealt the team to Phoenix. All right, but before the Phoenix adventure, um, there was a thought that it was going to go to Minneapolis-St. Paul, right? Yeah, there had been a rumor about that because uh, the team from uh, Minnesota, of course, had gone to Dallas. But uh, I was always under the impression, uh, and I had a little bit of inside information on that, I was always under the impression that if they were going anywhere, it was going to be to Phoenix. And uh, so, and, and that, uh, that, of course, is where it went. But uh, there was a Minnesota connection because uh, uh, the owner, the, uh, the owner, uh, Burke, uh, was from uh, was from Minnesota, and he was big with United Healthcare, and so he was the guy who was the, the big purchaser behind it, and uh, he moved it down into Phoenix. All right, how did you find out for sure for uh, for real that this uh, move was going to happen, and how who broke the news? Was it broken before the game? Did you find out during them? Uh, like, and then how did you incorporate that into your broadcasts? Well, no, by the time we realized the team was definitely gone, the season was over. Uh, the, the, the playoffs were over, but they had a chance to, to come back. It was in May when uh, this, this final gathering uh, that I spoke of at the corner of Portage and Maine, the season had been over. And uh, the party at uh, Thomas Steen's house that I mentioned was, was right after the final game of the year. And uh, so it was, as far as I was concerned, it was a wind-up party I was uh, fortunate to be invited to. And then I began to notice all these people who were there going into the back room and, and having these little meetings. Of course, I was never called in because I wasn't one of the rich guys, but I did notice that everybody who was going back there were, were people who owned businesses and were very prominent citizens in Winnipeg. So, no, this happened afterwards. Uh, we didn't have to break the news. That we, I mean, we had broken the news before that the team was going, and... Uh, 
it was going to happen at that time. And, of course, they had the final home game of the season. People had bought tickets for it. It sold out. It was the only game they sold out on that last year. But then they got into the playoffs, and then there was a rekindling of opportunity to maybe keep the team. So it, uh, I guess I sound like I'm talking in circles because the, the, the final analysis was still hope in May. But prior to that, uh, the, the whole season, that last season, they had about 9,000 people a game early in the season because people thought, you know, I'm not going to go there and support a team that's going to be leaving. You can't sell that. But everybody uh, circled one date on the calendar, and that was an April date when the L.A. Kings were going to be there. And, and they won that game, and by doing so, they made the playoffs, and they went up against uh, the Detroit Red Wings and, and were eliminated. So, yeah, and uh, there was a lot of... Uh, disconsolate people that day. In fact, I, I wrote uh, the story in my book, a story that kind of surprised me. After that final game was over, I had uh, taken my son there, and I was looking for him, and I'd walked to the car, and he wasn't there, so I walked back into the arena, and I stood in the bowl of the arena, and I was absolutely shocked by what I saw. There were probably two or 300 people still in the arena. Every single one of them was a teenage boy. And all these guys are sitting quietly. Some of them are on the ice, maybe taking some of the rink board advertising. Others are just staring. And all of them seem to be crying. I mean, these are guys that used to be macho, bravado, but there was none of that. And I thought, you know what? These guys are feeling the pain like nobody else because the Jets had been around all their lives. And a lot of them had dreamed of being a Jet one day. And now suddenly uh, it was gone. It was like they'd lost a loved one. All right, what's this? 417 Helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form. Really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is. Uh, and just about every league that's ever existed saved from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of. Uh, the WFL, remember the World Football League, how about various teams both current and past in the canadian football league but also ncaa teams of your and naia college football teams of your all of them and many 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 more available for you at 417helmets.com but oh that's not it that's not it friends there's plenty more to be had how about mini baseball helmets yeah uh, a whole bunch in the negro leagues and yes officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. Um, and by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, uh, maybe a promotional thing you wanna do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you wanna raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command. Uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets 
and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase. All of them. All of your purchases. 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd. And uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. So... I'm guessing that as you found out the officialness of the of the move, what was your initial feeling? I, I'm sure maybe a bit of freaking out because that may mean a job that you don't have anymore. Yeah, it was a double whammy for me. Uh, number one, I didn't want to see the team leave Winnipeg. And number two, I thought, what the heck am I going to do now? Because uh, I was kind of in my prime and uh, hoping something would materialize. And, and fortunately for me, it did. But uh, there was certainly a, a, a time of concern in more ways than one. And how does that rectify itself? How how then do you uh, essentially uh, board the plane with the team and, and move with them to Phoenix? I didn't board the plane uh, with them. In fact, they, they took the plane, they took a plane, a charter plane down to Phoenix, uh, I guess in about May or June. And I wasn't invited on that trip. And uh, they showed the players around and gave them an idea where they would where their practice facilities would be and what the city was like and where they thought they could probably build homes. And most of them did move to the Scottsdale area. Meanwhile, I was back and wondering what the heck I was going to do. And then I just, uh, I just got very bold. I just thought, you know, I got to go. And uh, I jumped on an airplane and I flew down there of my own accord. And I just uh, walked into the office of the Phoenix Coyotes, and uh, I didn't have an appointment. I just burst into the office of the president, and I proclaimed, there's only one man for the voice of the Phoenix Coyotes, and you're looking at him. And uh, Sean Hunter, the president, looked up at me and said, who the hell are you? So I uh, I uh, told him, and he asked me questions, and I was prepared with all the answers, and, and I got the job. So it was uh, it was an initiative that I took, and uh, it worked out. Well, that's, I mean, that's that's an amazing that's an amazing story. Uh, did they? Did you know if they had had? I, I'm assuming they had other plans. Had those plans been firmed up yet, or had, or were you walking in at a at a still squishy time where you could make an impression and 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 get them to to do that and maybe solve a problem that they didn't have to solve later? No, I, I walked in at the right time. They had uh, applicants, and they had, uh, I guess, advertised for applicants. And shortly after, I met the, the broadcast manager. And uh, once I had had the job, and I asked him about that, he said, oh, we look at this. And he showed me the pile of tapes he had and the pile of applications. And uh, so, but I guess a combination of the fact with my experience, and, and I also pushed on them. I said, it's a, it's a new franchise in a way, but there's still a little bit of history, and nobody's more aware of the history than me. And I can throw in little you know tidbits here and there about some of the players that other people wouldn't know. And I think that helps to sell me. Well, I, you know, that's, uh, I will get to that point in a second. So let's put a push pin on that for a second. Um, uh, talk about Phoenix, um, uh, your impressions of it. Had you been there before? Uh, it's obviously a radical move in terms of topography and geography and, and, and temperature and all that kind of stuff. Um, what, what was your impression of the market? Uh, it's readiness for hockey. Yes. That's a loaded question. And how did you adjust uh, from, you know, being in a smaller market to something much more spread out and, and dare I say, more metropolitan? Well, it was uh, totally different. I mean, uh, 
<laughs> hockey uh, was neglected in many ways. I remember when I got there, and uh, there were three 24-hour sports stations in Phoenix on AM radio. And I would drive around sometimes on a game day, and I would listen to what they've got. And it didn't matter what time of year it was. They'd be talking about football, mostly football, occasionally baseball, sometimes auto racing, and sometimes golf, but never, not even the station that carried the Coyote games was talking about hockey. And I thought it was kind of strange. And and then I I realized, and I, I know I'm talking to a talk show host here, but I came across the impression that people who do talk shows, and now you do questions, but people who do a lot of these talk shows only want to talk about things they know about that they feel somewhat expertise on. So they they didn't feel comfortable talking about hockey. And I thought, you know, why don't they have me come on and I can help them uh, talk a little hockey. So did a little bit of that. But, uh, you know, people like uh, Keith Kachuk, uh, Shane Doan, uh, Jeremy Roenick, they could walk down the street in Phoenix and uh, if 2,000 people walked by them, maybe one might have an idea who they were. So it was advantageous in some ways if you like, uh, you know, to be on your own and not be recognized, it was good. And uh, you got uh, a little more privacy that way. Whereas in Winnipeg, of course, anybody like that seen on the street, there would be people all over them. So it was, a, it was a tough sell in some ways. But also there had been a successful team there before in the Phoenix Roadrunners in the Western Hockey League. In fact, my dad was the voice of the Roadrunners prior to that. And he had told me that uh, they did pretty well sometimes. They they sold out their building on uh, playoff time, and they had some championships. I think they'd won two championships. So there was a, a nucleus there, but relative to the size of the city, it was, uh, you know, small. Yeah, well, I think the Roadrunners also, there was an incarnation of them in the WHA as well, too, for a year or two, right? Yeah, and it didn't uh, it didn't work out quite so well. They, the uh, I, I think they made some mistakes at that particular time. They brought in people who weren't familiar with the market, and and uh, it's it, uh, and they didn't quite have the financial backing they thought they should have. So it didn't work out as well. The, the Roadrunners uh, prior to that though had been uh, one of the more successful franchises in the Western League. Um, what of the nickname? Uh, like a lot of franchises, or at least the, the, the people go visit the, the, the owners tend to go through the motions of trying to get uh, fans to kind of throw out some names and stuff. Um, what was your impression of Coyotes? I was fine with it. Uh, I don't know. You know, a name. Everyone has different feelings about names. I, I thought Coyotes was a fine, was okay. I mean, it wasn't a great name, maybe, but. Uh, I think Roadrunners was a better day, but I think that had already been taken. It's kind of unique to that uh, part of the country. But uh, a name is what you what you make of it. We got a football team in Canada called the Red Blacks. I can't think of anything less imaginative than that. But some people think it's good, so a name, I guess, is just a name. How about um, how about the uh, uh, America West Arena? Um, my understanding is that uh, Jerry Colangelo and 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 friends, obviously, uh, it was uh, uh, quite well suited for the Suns in basketball, but um, maybe less so for hockey. Is do I have that right? You got it absolutely right. They okay. have three thousand. Like I'm underselling because you're, you're you're chuckling already. So I guess I just opened. Yeah, up no, they, they, I mean it's it's a nice looking building. It it, it was uh, particularly in, at that time, but it was made for basketball. And of course, a basketball court is much smaller than a hockey rink. And uh, so the people who sat in the top uh, tier, by example, uh, they couldn't see 
the closest third of the ice. They could only see from the far from the near blue line out. So they put up big screens at that one end. So any time the puck got into the defensive end, from those people's standpoint, they had to look up at the screen. So it wasn't they they weren't selling those three three thousand tickets. So one of the radio stations in Phoenix, KDKB, uh, bought all those seats and they would sell them for eight dollars each, and they would have rock concerts up there during a the game. And that uh, that helped for a couple of years, but eventually that staled too. And those seats they couldn't sell, so they they had to had to move. They had to get out of there. Uh, how about from a from a broadcast vantage? Well, uh, how did you handle that? Well, was that a challenge? How different was that from the Winnipeg Arena? No, I really liked my location uh, at at America West Arena. Where, where was your because uh, you, you know they, they didn't have a press box because they were a basketball arena, and of course basketball people sit on the court side. But what they did is they just knocked out a a handful of seats in one area and just kind of put a bench there. So you're sitting right in the middle of the crowd. And uh, the part of the crowd where I sat was all, we're all season ticket holders in that area. So I got to the point where I'd walk in and, and I knew a lot of the people who sitting right immediately behind me and the two rows behind me by name. So we, we kind of became friends and afterwards would often go across the street for a, for a libation after the game with some of the fans. So it was good. The only thing is uh, they had a tendency to stand up in front of you. So uh, sometimes when action got exciting and they'd stand up, uh, well, fortunately, I'm tall, so I was able to stand over top. And I explained to the people beside me, I'm sorry, i got to stand up. And they, they were fine. with it. It, was, it was a really good location because even if the building overall was quiet for a game, it was loud right there, and it gave a feeling of atmosphere. How did you feel about the team in terms of its uh, composition and players? And, uh, you know, it, was, it, it seemed the first couple of years they would sort of make the – sort of the, the, the initial rungs of the playoffs, but uh, I, I wouldn't say uh, the the first 90s years and the certainly the aughts were, you know, the, I wouldn't call them uh, hugely successful on the ice. And frankly, I'm guessing it was still kind of a tough sell, the building notwithstanding, uh, for fans of to be, you know, to come to hockey games in the middle of the desert either. Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, they... They had some seasons, though, two years in a row, they had the best record in the league in November. And it was odd because the first time they had the best record in the league in November because they had gone, I think it was 17 straight games without allowing more than two goals in a game. It was something no team had done since the 50s. And then the next year, they led the league in November because they were the highest scoring team in the league. So you never knew quite what to expect when the season started. But then always things would begin to deteriorate. And they had this thing that carried over from the days in Winnipeg. I got a stat that the team had 12 games over the course of the time when if they'd have won one of those games, they'd have moved to the next round of the playoffs. They lost all 12 games in a row. It happened over 25 years. So they, they didn't get uh, a playoff series win in a 25-year period. But 12 times, they were within one game. And uh, there was a 3-1 series leads a couple of times, actually three times, and that sort of thing. And they just couldn't seem to put the hammer down. When did you... Um, uh, so I, I, when did you sense that... Um, this was not uh, going to go well for for this franchise, or was there always sort of this ongoing hope? Because yeah, I say that almost haltingly because I think it's a fair com- question now, and maybe your opinion is helpful on this. But now too is 
I'm still not convinced personally <laughs> that it's that's you know given all the the recent drama around the arenas and stuff down there. Um, this just seems like Gary Bettman's um, uh, Waterloo, or or at least dream to keep this franchise there. You know, nobody in Phoenix can understand that either. I talked to some people recently because I still stay in touch with some. And I asked, what's this infatuation the commissioner has with Phoenix? And they say, we don't know. We talk about it all the time. So I think it's an absolute joke that they've got a franchise playing out of a facility that's going to seat 4,700 people. That's not Major League, not in the least. So obviously they're going to have to be bailed out because unless they're going to sell those seats for $1,000 each, that's not going to work. And uh, last I heard, they only had 1,600 season tickets sold. So I'm not sure how that's going to work. It, it seems strange. They're talking about it taking three years or so to build a new facility. And even that's not guaranteed, last I heard, unless there's something new on it, as to whether the city of Tempe is going to allow them to build there. So it's a strange, really a strange situation, particularly when there are so many markets like Houston and uh, Quebec City, to name a couple, that uh, would like to have a franchise. And would support it, especially Quebec City. You you left in the what oh seven I guess. I did yes. Okay, um, and I and I, that was around the time I guess of a year or two or so of of, I guess what could be called the Gretzky era. Um, I, before you, um, uh, moved on. Um, the uh, you know I guess there was sort of a new 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 hope in that part owner Gretzky, and, and I guess he was also now behind the bench now, too, could, I don't know, bring new heat, <laughs> if there was more heat needed in Phoenix, uh, to this franchise. I mean, what was your impression of of that process? I mean, we know kind of how it sort of panned out, but... Well, at that time, the the, uh, the owner was uh, Steve Ellman, and he was uh, having some uh, financial trouble, so he made a decision that uh, he thought if he could get Wayne Gretzky involved in the team that it would be an easier sell, particularly to other moneyed people who may want to buy in on the franchise because there's no bigger name in hockey than Gretzky. And and he had a tough sell with Gretzky. They got down to the uh, 11th hour before uh, Gretzky finally relented and said yes. Otherwise, the, the franchise would have moved to Portland, Oregon. And uh, really? Paul Allen wanted it there. And at that time, he was the second richest man in, in the U.S. next to Bill Gates. So Gretzky said yes, and Elman thought it would work. And uh, initially, they had uh, Bobby Francis was the coach, and after he was removed, uh, Gretzky uh, moved in behind the bench, gave it a shot. And I even think that Gretzky at one time meant to play for the team because there was one year he was at training camp on a regular basis, and uh, he was a full-time participant. And then it got time to the uh, the inter-squad game, and I remember watching that, and, and the magic was gone the next day. He, he wasn't out there. So uh, there was a lot of ideas and a lot of dreams that uh, were there at the time, but it just didn't quite work out. And, and uh, really, a person standing behind the bench uh, doesn't sell tickets. I um, So my sense is that uh, the, so the 06-07 season was their worst since uh, their relocation to Phoenix, right? And I guess... I guess you were part of just that general, like, just hands raised and just lets us clear house and, and you know, everything associated with, with the team were probably just just to get rid of any kind of uh, residual kind of stuff, right? I, it just... Yeah, well, they dumped, uh, they dumped a lot of people at that particular time, and uh, it, <laughs> including people who, of course, had nothing to do with the on-ice product. 
but uh, they may change for the sake of change and sometimes for reasons that uh, nobody could quite understand and it was an ongoing process and and uh, things, uh, I, I don't know, I don't think things have ever returned to anywhere near they should be. And and I know that uh, since uh, 07, the ownership has changed two or three more times. I don't really keep track of it anymore because it seems they've got new people there all the time, new hope, new ideas, and then the same old uh, problems uh, seem to materialize. So unless they get somebody concrete in there to stay the long long term, and obviously get a, a facility that seats more than 4,700 people. And even some of those seats have to be sold at a reduced price to people in the college. So they can't even get good dates there because uh, if there happens to be a Arizona State University volleyball tournament there that weekend, guess what? You don't play till Monday. So it's a, it's a strange situation. and They've got an awful lot of work to do if they're going to keep that franchise there. Um, but, okay, so i got a couple more questions to round it off because I know you probably want to go back to your life after just me grilling you for an hour or so um, <laughs> no it's good i enjoyed it but this um this uh, portland thing is new to me uh and news to me i um uh, uh I, what, I think it's a scoop yeah okay we're breaking news we're breaking news 20 years after the fact so <laughs> <laughs> give me so okay wh- wh- tell me the story then how when when did you sort of sense this and how real was this how well known was this uh, obviously, Paul, Paul Allen, the owner of the uh, the Trailblazers uh, in Portland, um, how how serious was this? Well, very serious, and uh, you know there, there were some of us within the organization who were aware of it at the time, and we knew that uh, that Gretzky was being courted to keep the team in Phoenix. And I remember talking to people about it and say, "What do you think?" Well. You know, if, if the team goes to Portland, we're gone, and uh, hopefully we would be. But uh, if Gretzky gets involved, maybe this thing can stay here. Because at the time, we wanted to stay in Phoenix. We we were still convinced that it was going to work out, and and that the facility in Glendale was was uh, was good, and and there would be an interest and in, in a regular basis of uh, people to watch the games and, and pick up. And I think we considered it a challenge. But uh, then, like I say, there were there were changes that took place uh, in the managerial suite that kind of. Uh, blew everything out of the water and things began to deteriorate and that's when you thought you know maybe they got to get this franchise out of here and i was surprised uh, knowing the financial wherewithal of uh, paul allen that it didn't move actually yeah that's interesting um i am also you wonder too how good or, or a, a market portland would have been i i you know and, and you think about it right now with seattle firmly entrenched i think a success beyond along with las vegas frankly wildest dreams um could be a very interesting regional rivalry, a reheating of some of the old WHL days back, you know, before the yeah, the old Portland Buckaroos. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, what 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 uh, what does one do then after being the voice of a team not only in one city but two cities for what some twenty some odd years or so, right? Yeah, um, I was seventeen years in uh, Winnipeg and ten years in Phoenix. So 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 what does one do then? I, I obviously you're you're now back in in Winnipeg. Um, it's got to be a bit bittersweet, but, but, um, yeah, how do you, what do you do to sort of, uh, what's the next chapter in the career? You're calling more stuff when you get back to, to Winnipeg, right? Yeah, I did a little bit of work uh, when I got back into Winnipeg on, uh, some, uh, a little bit of radio work and uh, some some hockey stuff, and I even took a shot at real estate for a while, and I found out as a realtor I was a pretty good plumber, so I got out of that. 
And uh, <laughs> then, of course, COVID came along, and there wasn't much of anything going on, really. And so that's when I really got into, wow, well, you know, I got these stories. I want to put them down. I wrote them down. And, and uh, after I'd written about 100 of them, I thought, you know, I think I got enough here. If I can maybe double up on these, I can, I can put together a book. So that's what I did. And it became... Uh, Something I enjoyed thoroughly the last couple of winters on a on a cold winter COVID afternoon with nothing better to do. I'll just go on the computer and see if I can pump out a couple more stories. And, and uh, like I say, I enjoyed it. Well, that's great. And, and you know, again, our audience is going to eat this up and hopefully you'll, you'll gain a few more um, uh, copies sold, at least for, for this. But let me so let me round up then. Um, with a couple of sort of uh, uh, through line type questions, because, I mean, if anybody is it uh, could be sort of a. Uh, 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 confused with being maybe a franchise historian. Um, I mean, I think you you could you could easily be that just by the fact that you were with this franchise for almost thirty years uh, in an official capacity. Um, so, one of the things we talk about uh, in this uh, silly little show of ours is sort of where the history sort of resides and should for these franchises that were previously domiciled or moved or have gone away and that kind of stuff. And and the Jets are an interesting story, right? Because obviously the new incarnation is now firmly ensconced, the former Atlanta Thrashers, itself its own story. Um, I guess the question there is, where do those WHA banners and any of the history of the NHL version um, uh reside those histories those stats and all that kind of stuff i know officially where they reside but um should it be in phoenix because the franchise did move there should it be retroactively sort of uh mixed in and commingled with the current jets and kind of washed over so to speak i i'm not sure that either of them are the correct answer no, I, I think the the history of the Winnipeg Jets should stay in Winnipeg, and the, the history of the Phoenix Coyotes should stay in Phoenix. Although, you know, they tried to incorporate the Jet history into Phoenix by what they called the Ring of Honor, and they hung up uh, the jersey of Bobby Hull, who, of course, was never a Coyote, but he had been a, a prominent WHA Jet. And also, they've got Dale Howard, Chuck Thomasine up there, and also Tempo Newman. And know, Tempo did play with both teams. And, uh, and Shane Doan, who was mostly a Phoenix Coyote, but very briefly a Winnipeg Jet. So they tried to do that to establish a little bit of history down there. And it's interesting when I've talked to people in Winnipeg about it. I was golfing with someone the other day who said there were a lot of people in Winnipeg who were bitter about that. They, they were mad enough that uh, P- the Phoenix took the franchise. And then to retire the jerseys, they thought it was uh, rubbing salt into the wounds. And, and I said, I, I know where you're coming from. But uh, with what you're talking about, no, I think that uh, – uh, you know, each each team should have its own. Uh, the, the Phoenix Coyotes. When I think of the Phoenix Coyotes, I think of uh, Keith Kachuk and, and Shane Doan and and Sean Burke and uh, maybe uh, Nikolai Habibulin, although he was also big here. And of course, where the Jets are concerned, that's where you're talking about Bobby Hull and Dale Howard, Chuck and uh, Thomas Steen, Dave Babich, and a few others. Uh, who were here at that particular time. So, But the thing is, uh, here they've been a little hesitant uh, with the second uh, iteration of the Jets to acknowledge the original Jets. Uh, they didn't even want to call them that initially. The owner, Mark Chipman, uh, wanted to call them something different, but there was an overwhelming 
demand from people here to call them the Jets. And the alumni actually felt a little bit slighted, I know, until recently. And now suddenly they're beginning to pay a little bit more attention to what happened with the original Jets. I see where come November they're going to honor Tepo Newman and Timu Solani. So I think that's a, that's a positive step. Solani was honored here previously, but uh, in, the, in the first couple of years, it, in fact, I understand they weren't even allowed to show old Jet jerseys for the first three years on the television broadcast. So it was like they were trying to erase it and start something new. And now I think maybe they've realized the error of their ways and they're going to try to appreciate what they had and, and build something on it as well as what they have now. So so the, the NHL has not officially, we call it retcon or retroactively, retroactive continuity uh, papered over uh, – that franchise yet, right? I mean, so like for example, the Hartford Whalers and Carolina Hurricanes, right? That's a that's a really sore sort of source of um, of contention. There's some other scenarios in sports elsewhere too, where you know, like the Cleveland Browns, right? The Cleveland Browns of the NFL, yeah. you know, the, the team moved to Baltimore, yet you know, the NFL in their wisdom or naivete or somewhere in between that you know, decided that they were just going to essentially retroactively make con- uh, continuous the history of the Browns as if they never left. Um, and I no, think that's, that's not right. And, you know, and you talk right. about the Carolina Hurricanes and the Hartford Whalers. You know, an example would be if the Carolina Hurricanes were to retire the number of Gordie Howe. That wouldn't be right. He never played there. and uh, But it is in Hartford as it is in Detroit. So, I don't know, I, I believe once a franchise moves – and uh, that it's it's new there. That's uh, I don't think the history should continue. Yeah, I, we we we've experienced this say with the the Minnesota Wild, right? With the Minnesota North Stars, right? I mean, there there's a really interesting one, right? Because the the they officially moved to Dallas. Uh, a bunch of the diaspora went to what became the San Jose Sharks. There's even a little bit of uh, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins thrown in there with Howard Baldwin involved in all that, right? So. But, you know, the question still remains, and, and I know it's it's just silly and maybe silly. I don't think it's silly. I don't think the history, I don't think the people that were involved, I don't think everybody that was there physically enjoying and or rooting for and all that stuff, I, you don't want to see that either papered over or worse, um, misremembered, right? And um, to me, that, that, that I think is important because it's not, to your point, right? Some of these players in this ring of honor never played. In that arena, in that market, in that for that fran- that version of the franchise. Yeah, when you get a crossover, it's a different thing. I mean, when uh, a player has been with one franchise and it uh, moves and he stays with the franchise, he can be a hero in both places. His uh, his jersey can be retired in both places. But if he's only established an identity on ice uh, in one locale, then I don't think his uh, jersey should be retired or his number acknowledged in another one. No. Yeah, I mean, I, look, there's nothing in this realm that doesn't get solved by money, right? And um, if there's a retro jersey to be sold, right, I can imagine that somebody <laughs> will claim it, and and perhaps that's the perhaps that's the entree by which the current version of the Jets uh, solve the problem, so to speak. I, as far as you know, where are those, for example, three original championship WHA banners? Are they back now in? Uh, in the hands of the current, uh, the current Jets in the um, uh, in their uh, Canada Life Center arena. You know, I think they're in the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, I, you know, I I don't know for sure. I, I don't recall having seen them 
at uh, the Jets facility that they play at now. But in fairness, I've only been there twice, so uh, I I don't know for sure. And I, I it it just seemed like they didn't really want to acknowledge that much of the past at that particular time. But I I think they're taking a step in the other direction. So what may not have been there maybe last year might be this year, and I kind of hope that they'll do that because there are a lot of uh, alumni that are still here in Winnipeg who played. A lot of the old uh, WHA Jets are still here, and even a two or three of the guys who played with the NHL Jets. So, you know, they they should still be a fairly prominent part of the franchise and part of the, the record. And, and, of course, they should be the kind of people that can be seen and recognized at a Winnipeg Jet game. Uh, well, frankly, as should you, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, you're the voice of the of this team in their NHL years. And, for you know, uh, frankly, you, you should also be <clears throat> feted in, in – uh, well, I, I don't know how many memories there really are in the Phoenix Arizona Coyotes uh, saga, right? So I'll put well, that. actually, they did. Uh, I, they did name the uh, the the press box the press box after me in Phoenix. Uh, oh, great. The, the one they had in Glendale. So, so I, I don't know whatever became of that banner. Whether it's still up there or not, it was still there last year. I know, even though I've been gone since '07, but now the franchise is gone. So. I'm sure that people walking in there now saying, "Who who is this clown?" Well, you, you've got to you've got to get that banner for yourself at least. I mean, you know. Yeah, maybe I should bring it home and put it up on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, look, I guess the only reason I obsess about sort of the banners and stuff is right. I mean, in the history of this franchise, in both markets, but especially when it was in Winnipeg, right? The team won three championships, right? The only three championships in the history of this franchise, even as it exists today in Arizona, um, and for it and that not to be. I guess, more directly connected or remembered to what exists now as pro hockey in Winnipeg. Seems a little odd to me, but I, you know, I, there are business reasons, I guess, and psychic reasons as to maybe why not. But I I don't know, to me as a, as a naive outsider, not from the area and just doing a silly little podcast, it would seem to me that the final act of this uh, uh c- c- completing the circle so to speak of the Winnipeg Jets story um would be to uh make amends and and uh, intelligently incorporating the the history of the entirety of the franchise from its WHA inception to what it is now with recognition that things changed and there's a new version of it but a celebration maybe that you know, it's Winnipeg, it's hockey, it's still one of the smaller markets, and it's the NHL, for God's sakes, and we should celebrate all that. All I couldn't agree with you more. You've uh, you've said it all right there. And, uh, you know, it's uh, they, they've got a tradition that they should be proud of because, like you say, the championships in the WHA years, and, and even though they didn't win a championship in the earlier edition of the Winnipeg Jets, they did have some tremendous hockey teams. And, of course, uh, some people like Dale Howardchuk and T. Mussolini who set all kinds of uh, records and achievements. So that's something that uh, has to be acknowledged, should be acknowledged, and I think will be. All right, last question. Do you enjoy still watching NHL hockey? Do you not care for it anymore? And (laughs) what are your feelings about uh, uh, well wishes or maybe not so much for the – what do you think is going to happen in Arizona ultimately? Well, as far as uh, the NHL is concerned, I don't watch near as much, obviously, as I did uh, when I was a part of it. I've become more versed now 
back in the day, I, I really didn't know much about uh, Major League Baseball or about the NFL or even the CFL. But now I'm watching them uh, a lot because I have a, an awful lot of extra time to do that sort of thing. So it's uh, it's a mixed bag. I think I, I know more about sports now than I did when I was doing strictly hockey. And uh, as far as the the uh, Phoenix Coyotes are concerned, they can't make it in that rink. They they absolutely cannot make it in that rink. Forty seven hundred is a joke. So unless they get a promise real soon that uh, they're going to build a new facility in Tempe, and they got deep deep pockets to weather the three years, and uh, the league is is willing to continue to support them, which I imagine is a bit of a must be a bit of a tough selling point with the team in Carolina or uh, or Montreal to say why are we doing this and keep pouring money into that franchise. So I think it's it's a real tough sell there, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're in Houston very soon. So you don't you don't think if they don't get a new arena, there there's just no way. Well, no, they can't play in Tempe forever. For sure. And for whatever reason, uh, I guess there were some problems in in Glendale and. Even though that's a, it's a beautiful rink, it was a real good NHL rink. I thought apparently they're uh, they're no longer welcome there, so that's that's where that lies. Very interesting. Um, and uh, and that was going to be my last question: is what market do you think they go to, or or what other markets do you think Canada too included? By the way, I mean why not Quebec? I mean I know it's still small, but um, Quebec City I think is. Uh, very much deserving, if you think about it historically, uh, of, a, of a franchise anew. Yeah, you know, I always enjoyed going to Quebec City back in the days of the Nordique, and uh, the people there were, were really behind it. And It's a smaller place, though. It's smaller than Winnipeg and with the, the escalating prices. But again, if you've got uh, the right people behind it, you can afford it. That's where, personally, I would like to see it go. But I think there's a stronger possibility that if it goes, and again, it may not, if it goes, that Houston would be the most likely recipient. Well, and and perhaps maybe one last shot, perhaps, for for you to maybe get behind the microphone. That Wouldn't that be an interesting uh, 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 closing of circle <laughs> there? I mean, uh, talk about, I mean, the, the person with the longest tenure of, of broadcasting in, in this franchise's history. Um, now you're making me sound like Gordy Howe. Well, I mean, you know, it's the, the it's it's it says something. And um, again, I you know, I it's I think it's great that you did this book. Um, and again, I'm I you know I I know enough about Winnipeg's uh, hockey history to be dangerous. Um, but you know, to me, I'm sure it's still very much a a real uh, and sore sort of spot and memory for a lot of folks. This, uh, the franchise and the history and all that stuff. And, and as I said, you know, you, you're just as much a part of that fabric, perhaps even more so uh, than some of the characters we talked about who were only there for a few years, right? So, well, uh, through longevity. Yeah, yeah well, through look, longevity, I, I guess I, that. And, you know, well, well people, people tend to identify too with, uh, with somebody who's been there for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's a, you get a bit of an inflated perspective of the broadcaster because I can remember when I was doing the Jets, I was quite popular here. I knew it, but I, I'd go to other markets like Vancouver and they thought Jim Robson was the best. And I went to Edmonton, they thought the same thing about Rod Phillips and in Calgary about Peter Marr. And then I began to realize, you know, a lot of these people, and I run into people still to this day that say, you know, they're middle aged now. And they'd say, when I was young, I used to smuggle a little radio into my room and I'd listen to you and the late games and then fall asleep and I realized you know that's what it is that created a bond 
And so suddenly, uh, whether you deserve it or not, you become the favorite broadcaster. So it uh, gave you a good feeling, but you always had to realize that it was just because uh, it was so intimate. Radio was very intimate, more so than television. Tremendous. Tremendous. There's got to be a ton more stories to go to from, from Kurt. There's no doubt. Uh, I mean, you know, I we just scratched the surface, of course, with this conversation. And I suspect that even having after having read the book uh, now out called Two Minutes for Talking to Myself, uh, published by Friesen Press, uh, available wherever good books are found or, of course, through our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode number 277 with Kurt Kielbeck. And uh, you'll be whisked away to Amazon, and we'll get a couple of shekels of referral love. Thank you very much. Uh, you'll find it in hardcover or paperback versions. And, and if you're buying it on Amazon, either directly or through us, uh, you can also get the Kindle version if, if you'd like as well. Uh, but my point is, I think there's probably a ton more stories to come uh, beyond just the 222 pages of this version. Uh, and if there is a second edition and more to come, let's hope it's sooner rather than later. This is a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Um and I'm not the hugest hockey fan, to be honest. Uh, and, but I love the discovery of it. I love the discovery, the origin stories of all this stuff, and the people who were around during those days of the the NHL's original version, Winnipeg Jets, and the beginnings of the still flailing Coyotes franchise. It's fascinating to me, and I love talking to people who were uh, directly involved, who were there, because uh, they're the those are the stories that uh, you know uh, are are the ones to be cherished and uh, and really are the most accurate for sure. Um, you can follow Kurt on Twitter at Kurt Kielbach. Kielbach is spelled K-E-I-L-B-A-C-K. Kurt is spelled C-U-R-T. So it's at Kurt Kielbach on Twitter. And probably more uh, intensely and uh, regularly, you can follow his exploits uh, about his background and uh, the current book at uh, his website at KurtKielbach.com. That's KurtKielbach.com. I'll spell all together one more time. C-U-R-T-K-E-I-L-B-A-C-K dot com. Uh, and uh, we wish Kurt the best with this book and uh, truly, truly uh, suggest you run out and uh, and get a copy. It's it's fun, even if you're not a hockey fan. Just good stuff. Broadcasting and the hijinks of the NHL and the stories of the people of hockey. My goodness. Fantastic stuff. While you're on the web or on your mobile device or whatever, or, uh, slip on over to GoodSeatStillAvailable.com and you'll find all of our old episodes there, all 260, sorry, 277. This is 277, right? So all the 276 episodes that came before this one are available on the site uh, and all the ones to come as well. Uh, of course, the best way to keep abreast of what's going on with this show is to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast uh, feed or system or source or platform. We're available wherever you can find uh, good podcasts, just about anywhere you want. Uh, and uh, you can also follow us on social media, of course. Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. Instagram, Good Seats Still Available. And also on Facebook, too. Want to send us some email? By all means, go right ahead. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Um, that's what I all I got for you this week. Jerry Payne, thank you, sir, for your uh, kind uh, knob twiddling as well. You may have... Uh, a feeling or two about uh, the current version of the Winnipeg Jets, given that they were the Atlanta Thrashers beforehand. Um, but uh, you can stop yelling at the at your computer now. Just uh, just get the edit done, will you? Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Obviously, it got done because this episode's out there now, isn't it? 
Thank you, kind sir, and thank you, kind listener. Uh, more good stuff to come in the weeks ahead. Please stay tuned. Check your podcast feeds and uh, keep those proverbial cards and letters coming. We appreciate it. It lets us know that you enjoy what you're hearing, and uh, we appreciate uh, all of that reciprocity. Take care until next week. Take care. Bye-bye.